0: South of the Mason Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeyville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 287, covering the week of November 8th through November 12th, 2021. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page. And subscribe to our YouTube page. Our YouTube page is invaluable. It's where we have all of our podcasts. You can get them there. You can also uh, see our lectures from our past conferences, our Abbeville U videos, which are our five-minute videos on a variety of topics. We're going to be doing more of those in the future. So take a look at those. We really enjoy that part of what we do in our mission to explore. It's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And again, all of that is free of charge as is our website. So if you like our website, if you like our podcast, if you like everything we do, please consider a donation to the Abbeville Institute. It is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. You can go to abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. That's where you can find all of our social media pages. And, of course, you can click on that Donate button, and it'll take you right out to our Donate page. This is the end of the year, so if you're making your tax preparations please consider that donation, again, tax-deductible to the full extent of the law, so you get something out of it. And, of course, you help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And, again, if you want to donate monthly, annually, a one-time gift, we'll take as little as 5 bucks a month or less. Whatever you can give to the Institute, we greatly appreciate your support. Also, while you're at abbevilleinstitute.org, give us that email address. We'll give you a free ebook Exploring the Southern Tradition. It is written by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. It's it's our gift free of of charge to you simply for giving us that email address. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday. It's also how we keep in contact with you. So our email list is invaluable as social media is getting harder and harder to navigate because of restrictions and censorship and other things. So the email address actually helps us do what we need to do on a regular basis. Also, if you go to abbevilleinstitute.org, in the middle of the page, you have a couple of interesting things. You've got our Douglas... Rogers essay contest. Now, the deadline for that is coming up in January. So if you have an undergraduate student in your life, if you're an undergraduate student, college undergraduate student, or if you know someone, a child, a grandchild, a cousin, brother, sister, whatever it is, tell them about this essay contest because they can get cash. All they got to do is follow the prompt, write the essay, and submit it on in. And of course, we will pick three winners out of that. We have a committee set up, so that's a great opportunity for you to get cash for college, right? So it's a good scholarship. Also, if you click on the Abbeville U button in the middle of the page, there's a nice picture there. Click on that Abbeville U, uh, or it's it's I'm sorry, Abbeville Academy is what we're calling Abbeville Academy. Excuse me, the Abbeville Academy page. It's AbbevilleAcademy.org is our is our web for it. Uh, you can purchase the Zoom conferences we've had after the fact, so. You can purchase a number of those conferences. We haven't done one in October. Not sure about November. We might do one in December. So it's been a little bit up in the air this this, uh, last couple of months. But certainly go to that Abbeville Academy page. It's a great resource. We've got a lot of great lectures on there. And again, not that expensive. $15 for those. And you get to download the audio and the video on that. And uh, they're great resources as well. And those are Abbeville Institute scholars that are involved in that. So it's our educational outreach. These are things we're trying to do. These are part of our mission to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Uh, make the Abbeville Institute your Amazon Smile uh, uh, charity. So, if you shop at Amazon, you can go to Amazon Smile, and of course, you can make us your preferred 501c3. So, every time you shop at Amazon, we can get a few pennies back when you purchase a product there. So, there's all kinds of ways to support the Institute. Click on the shop tab at Abbeville Institute, get your Abbeville Institute apparel, and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, it's These are the ways that you can help advertise the Institute, help support the Institute, almost painlessly through the Amazon Smile. And as always, if you like the podcast, if you like our articles, do share them around because that's how we grow organic interest in our mission. Okay, all of that said, and I know I went long talking about these things, but we are at the end of the year and I want to make people aware of all the ways you can support the Institute as you're thinking about, again, your tax preparations uh, maybe Christmas gifts, other things. You know, our, our apparel makes great Christmas gifts, so that's a great way to do it. Also, those classes, other things that you can do uh, to help us out there. Now, I want to talk about the material for the week. We had a, a an interesting article, I think, on on Wednesday, and I want to start there. And I want to start here because of the background of this. Now, this particular article, it's an article. It's a chapter from a book. Um, the title of the book uh, is "A Girl's Life in Virginia Before the War," and it's written by Letitia Burwell. And if you if you go out and look up Letitia Burwell, or you look up this particular book, what you're going to find is this is a can be used as pejorative, right? This particular book is panned, denounced. The modern historical profession hates this thing. They call it lost cause propaganda. Now, you have to understand, Letitia Burwell was um, the granddaughter of Thomas Jefferson's personal secretary. Right, So she comes from a very prominent Virginia family, and she was an ardent confederate. She really supported the cause. Uh, her father had served in the Virginia ha- uh, House of Delegates uh, several times. And she wrote this book about life in the Old South. Now, what's interesting to me about this, in this particular Chapter and the book entirely. I mean, it's a it's an interesting book. Lots of people are fascinated with things like Downton Abbey, right? Downton Abbey was a very popular television show, and I think they have a movie coming out again, another movie. And people love to marvel at the estates of Europe and uh, the inner workings of that, whether it's the family that had the estate or the people that worked for the estate. And they, they marvel at all of the etiquette and all the things going into that. Now, Downton Abbey takes place in the early 20th century. But the grandmother in that particular show goes back into the 19th century. She is She's probably, I guess, in the show in her 70s or so. And so she was living during the Victorian age in England. And that's the exact same time period that Letitia Burwell is writing about. She was born... Uh, in 1831, so she's a child during this period of time, this uh, Victorian period in the United States. And it certainly influenced much of uh, Western culture. The Victorian age influenced everything. It wasn't just in England, it was also in the United States. And so the fashions, the social customs, the moors, the, the, uh, the furniture, the decorations, all of that, was certainly influenced by the, this, this Victorian age. And uh, I was struck by a, a, a letter that I saw from an individual visited John Tyler's plantation. Now, this was uh, in the 1840s, or I should say uh, 1850s. I'm sorry. He's visited in the 1850s. And Tyler... Tyler's uh, servants, his slaves, actually were wearing liveries, right? So they went to pick this guy up in a boat, and they took him down the James River, and they were all wearing liveries, so they all had a uniform on. This is the exact same thing you would find in uh, in England with the staff that worked in the houses. They had they wore liveries, so the the culture was the same in terms of what they were doing. Now, of course, in England, the difference was that these people were uh, free laborers. Of course, in in the South, they were slaves, but the culture was the same, and of course, any time you read about labor conditions in either place, uh, it's not going to be very pleasant. Victorian age England—I mean, this is where you get uh, um, <laughs> this is where you get Dickens, right? I mean, Dickens writing about how horrible it was to live in the cities of Victorian England. It wasn't very nice, and you have the workhouses and other things. People essentially being put into a prison, and you have to work to have your to have your upkeep there. So this was horrible stuff, and these people were abused and all kinds of things. So you have very hard working conditions across the world if you're a laborer. And I was thumbing through a a book, a popular book, on uh, presidents that assumed office, right? So John Tyler was the first one, the first man to do so, the first vice president to assume the office of presidency after William Henry Harrison died. And it was getting into the USS Princeton disaster accident, where the Princeton was out on a a sojourn on the Potomac, and it was firing its big cannon, the Peacemaker, and it blew up, of course, killing uh, Abel Upshur, and uh, also the Secretary of the Navy, and several other people on the deck. And one of the people killed was one of John Tyler's slaves. And John Tyler paid that slave's mother $200. Now, she was also a slave, but paid her $200... Because his because her son lost his life in the accident, and the author of this uh, this uh, chapter this book thought this was odd. You know, John Tyler uh, doesn't uh, he? He's uh, pro-slavery. Why would he do this? Well, if you read Eugene Genovese and if you read Fogel and Engerman, you read Time on the Cross. You read all of these these books that were written before we have a period of time where everything is uh, everything is so heightened, right? That the the, the the sensitivity of these things is so heightened. They talked about this kind of stuff. There was this very interesting dynamic in the South um, when it comes to relationships between uh, the races. And it wasn't it was stilted. Of course, it was it was regimented. It was what it was. But there was also a lot of interaction between these people. And in fact, Republicans in the 1850s pointed that out. they didn't like the South because they thought there was too much interaction between white and black people. They wanted their their United States for white people. So this is an interesting part of the South. And when you read this chapter, and it's uh, I titled it Social Time in Old Virginia, and you look at what she says about people coming to their home and uh, the social interactions, and it's quite a funny chapter. I mean, she's writing this from her re- recollections as a young girl in this period of time. And uh, it's really funny the things that she says about it. And throughout the book, she talks about slavery. She talks about uh, uh, the relationship between the family and the slaves and all kinds of things. It's a very interesting interesting book. And several people wrote these. Another one uh, that was very popular was White and Black Under the Old Regime. Uh, it was written by Victoria uh, Clayton, whose husband, Henry D. Lamar Clayton, was a uh, Confederate general, later the president of the University of Alabama. And they were from Eufaula, Alabama. Now, this is a book about Virginia, but certainly an old Virginia family. So you have all of this this history coming out of these, these places. And the historical profession essentially has decided that all these people lie. That's what they say. Well, essentially, they lie. Well, why would they lie? Why would they lie about this at all? That's the question. And why do we find one place, England, so interesting, but yet in the South, it's not? Well, because of the racial dynamics as one, but also because um, I think that we think England is exotic, but the South isn't. Well, for years, people thought the South was exotic. The, th- the South was something that was interesting because it was different. It was, as Lord Acton pointed out, really the last gasp of Western civilization, traditional Western civilization in the United States. Once that was gone and and the South hung on to it for, for generations afterwards... But then, when that was gone, it was all gone, and uh, he lamented that that this was going to be a problem. And of course, the war and the social transformations that took place did much to that. But uh, so you have this this the society in the South. It's different from maybe the society in the North. Though you did have people with money, and they had servants, and people with liveries, and other things in the North too. But if you read the letter, and this was the letter I'm speaking of, came from a man from New York who traveled. To go visit uh, go visit John Tyler. And he was from a fairly wealthy family in New York. They had a they actually had a plantation home in uh, in on Long Island. Um, and so they had money, but he was he was the the South was exotic. It was the wildfowl and the in the in the environment and the people. It was all exotic. It was like going to a whole nother place. And that's what he marveled at. And he loved it. He actually was the, the man that wrote it was a professor at Harvard University. And so this was this this interesting part of it, but if you look at why this particular chapter, or why this woman, Letitia Burwell, why she's so demonized, I think it goes into the the piece we ran on Tuesday and the one on Friday. But the piece on on Tuesday, "Social Justice Is Our New Religion," um, it's a review of a book by John Harris, and John, we we focus on John Harris a couple of times this week at the at the uh, on the website. Uh, John Harris wrote this book, Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. And I think this is it. What we have in America, and it saturated everything, and it, it came out of the academy. And this is, I mean, this is where it all started. And I remember when I was going through graduate school, everything was race, class, gender. And that's what you had to do if you wanted to become a, an establishment historian. You had to focus on race, class, and gender and something in your in your work. And if you wrote anything traditional, of course, my dissertation was not race, class, gender. It was traditional. Uh, it wasn't going to be as well accepted. Uh, I remember Clyde Wilson said to me when I when I did it, "This is this is a a um, a fine dissertation because it's essentially in his mind, it was what a dissertation should be." I went out and found a subject, a person that uh, nobody had ever written anything about before, and I looked at all those letters. And did everything I could with it and told a political story about the person. I mean, this is what dissertations are supposed to be. But and, and actually the, the entire committee thought that too. I mean, this was something, but the the thing was to get to get books published, you go and you again, you thumb through the local bookstore if you have one and you look at what's being published, and it's not that. It's all race, class, gender. And so it becomes a religion. And this is why Letitia Burwell is a heretic. She doesn't fit the modern woke religion. She doesn't fit the social justice religion And it's this thing gets it infects everything because even if you look at people that are quote unquote conservative, right they're infected with it because just the way they have to say things in their books or the subjects they have to pick or how they frame the subjects they pick is part of this. And so I, I really like this um, this review and it gets into this idea that now we have, uh, a a secular religion, it's social justice, and that's not real religion, but people treat it as such. And if you are a heretic, if you don't, if you don't toe the line on the dogma, if you don't, if you don't go out and follow the tenets of the religion, well, then you have to be a, uh, Ostracized. You you're not you're not welcome in the club. And not only that, I mean, part of cancel culture is the same thing the Puritans were doing in Massachusetts in the 17th century. I mean, if, if you were not Puritan enough, well, they they booted you out of the colony. I mean, this is where you get Rhode Island. <laughs> this is where you get Roger Williams. This is where you get New Hampshire. John Wheelwright. I mean, these are people that were booted out of the colony because. They didn't toe the line on the dogma of the way that Winthrop and others wanted the, the church to be viewed in Massachusetts. So you have these heretics that are booted out. And this is where they got into the witch trials and other things. This is what they were doing there. They were finding the heretics and moving them out. And so that's what cancel culture is all about. It's a new secular Puritan religion. They're the political Puritans. And I, I think that's what the South fault. I mean, the South doesn't fit the religion at all. The Southern tradition cannot fit the the religion. And when you punch holes in their in their dogma, they get very upset about this. So Letitia Burwell punches holes in their dogma. And so you I mean that's just you can't you can't say it, you can't have that because that doesn't fit what we think about the South. It doesn't fit what we think about America. It doesn't fit what we think about society. If you're in that that group think that's called the Establishment Historical Profession. And within that, you also have popular historians that do the exact same thing. The, the book that I'm talking about with John toddler was written by a popular historian. He's not he's not an academic. It's a popular historian, but he has to toe the line. And, and the major publishing houses do this too. I mean, they, they want you to write how they want you to write it. Now, cancel culture. What's part of that? Of course, taking down anything traditional. That would be monuments. And so... Uh, John Harris and his group, his, uh, his production company, Last Stand Studios, did a, a great video that featured a lot of Abbeyville Institute scholars, including yours truly, but also Don Livingston and Phil Lee and Bill Wilson. Uh, and we talked about monuments. And it's, it's a great, great documentary on American monuments. And we featured it on Monday. If you haven't had a chance to look at it yet, uh, you can go out to our webpage, and it's the it's the post for Monday, and it's also on YouTube, so uh, you can go take a look at it there. But that that idea of taking down monuments, and there's a, one particular, uh, I mean, revealing part of this. Uh, they had a, a, a black uh, legislator, state legislator from Florida, from Pensacola, and he tried to get a monument protection bill passed in Florida and was knocked down by the Republican Party, the very party that's supposed to be against cancel culture, but the Republican Party in Florida was against it. And so the Confederate monument in Pensacola was taken down. And in fact, they didn't just take down the monument. There are stairs leading up to it. It's really be- it was a really beautiful monument. And they not only took down the monument, but they covered up in white paint the names of the states that led up to the monument. So it wasn't just, a, they have to cover up the names of the states. They had to whitewash, literally whitewash Anything that was associated with it. They also, there was a purple, there's another monument, in another part of the of the city there to Purple Heart recipients. It was vandalized. And what you're seeing across the United States is all monuments are being vandalized and attacked and destroyed. And we've all we said this from 2015 on. This was going to happen. It it it, it was part of the process. You see, it's against the social justice religion. These monuments are traditional. These monuments uh, celebrate or respect or uh, uh, honor people that uh, would not be considered to be acceptable in modern social justice woke society. So they have to go because they hold views different from modern social justice woke society. So they have to go. We've been saying this now for six years it won't stop with Confederate monuments. It will never stop with Confederate monuments, and it will come back. They will try to take everything down. Now, there's going to be a boomerang, a boomerang effect here, and I think the polling data shows that wokeness is very unpopular, even among Generation Z people, which, of course, would be uh, those following millennials. They're not too happy with wokeness or social justice. They don't think it's very good cancel culture. They're not really on board with it. Uh, the majority is kind of moving against it because they see what it is. I mean, it's taking, it really is, uh, Crom- uh, you know, Cromwell. It's, it's, uh, it's taking everything that would be interesting out of society. And it's creating a monolithic culture that nobody likes. Nobody likes this stuff. Uh, I mean, those on the far left do, but the, the, the data again there is very interesting about that. Uh, the far left progressives make up about 6% of the American electorate. And yet they have a disproportionate influence in policy because they are vocal and they go out and they say what they say and they, and they are always on. They're always doing what they're doing. So you have that pushing this new social justice religion and they're the zealots. And so the zealots make a lot of noise and they get things done. Most people don't care. They're just like, ah, yeah, I don't care about that. They didn't even pay attention to monuments. It didn't even matter but yet the zealots were pushing it, and so that makes it... I mean, we know that taking down monuments is going to change crime and poverty and all these other things. We just had these monuments down. All that stuff would go away, right? So, I mean, this is how stupid all of it is. But all the stuff, like Letitia Burwell, or the piece we ran on on Thursday, John Rock and Yankee Hypocrisy by Rod O'Barr, this is an interesting piece because it's about John Rock, and John Rock was... Um. A, the, one of the first uh, African-American men to receive a medical degree in the United States. And uh, he was the first African-American to be admitted to the bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. So, he's, he's a very well-educated individual. And he, of course, was an abolitionist. He was uh, uh, an individual who uh, uh, certainly... Uh, was active in abolitionism in Massachusetts. In fact, um, he would speak before the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. He was from Salem, Massachusetts. But what he says about the North is interesting, and what he says about the South is interesting. He gave a speech in 1863, and Roddobar found this and wrote a little piece about it, where he essentially blames Racial disparities on the north, not the south. In fact, he makes arguments that southerners would make immediately after the war, it would sound very much like John Rock. But when southerners make the same arguments after the war, well, that's just racism. That's not true. John Rock is making the same arguments in 1863 in Massachusetts that southerners were much more tolerant, southerners were doing things, I mean, they they were, but northerners were not. I mean, these are arguments that were being made by a northern African-American in 1863. Not, uh, not Letitia Burwell, who said essentially the same things in her little book on Virginia, Virginia society, saying the same things. But because John Rock is saying them, well, I mean, it gives it a little more, a little more interesting spin to this, right? So we have two people from two different societies, from two different places, saying the same things. What's also interesting is you take the letter that from the individual that I talked about visiting Tyler's plantation in the 1850s, and you look at Nehemiah Adams and his book on uh, slavery in the South. He traveled to the South. Nehemiah Adams from Massachusetts traveled to the South in the 1850s and wrote a book which was, I mean, the abolitionists hated this thing because he initially went to the South to prove that Uncle Tom's cabin was correct, that, uh, the, that uh, what what Stowe was saying was accurate. And he comes back and he writes this book. He says, well, that, I can't find any of what she's saying there. I can't find evidence of this. Now, Genovese talks about this. And he said, by 1860, any of these things that Northerners were saying about the South, you could find some of these things here and there, maybe. But by the 1860s, it had virtually disappeared. All of these things that in the mind of the abolitionists that took place were not happening. Uh, and so this was almost cosplay or you know larping live action role playing that these people would get involved in they were they were fabricating and fantasizing about these things almost like they're the ones with the disease and the sickness not those in the south and when people travel down there and they wrote about it and they said well this is what it's like well that's not true the the disbelief was there but here's John Rock an abolitionist in 1863 saying the exact same things that say Alexander H. Stevens would say uh, following the war, or Letitia Burwell, or any of the "quote-unquote" lost causers who were uh, who have now been used as a pejorative, who are now considered to be you know unreliable sources. If you if you look at that, these people aren't right. They're not accurate. They're not saying they're they're not correct about this. Yet, if you've got evidence from two places, Massachusetts and Virginia, and of course other places in the South, but you've got people saying the same thing. Well, then would they were they all lying? Were they all telling fibs? Were they all doing these things? Or was there something else going on? Are they real liars? Is the real myth the righteous cause myth in America? That's the question. Is that the real myth? Is that the real myth? And I think that's something we we have to understand. This is why at the Institute we often label and tag these pieces as northern studies. What we really need are departments of northern studies around the United States. We don't need departments of Southern Studies programs. We don't need those. We need Northern Studies programs because the North was really the odd section. The North was really the section where you had people that were doing things that were not in line with the rest of the world. It was the North that was the odd. It was the deep North, not the deep South. So it's important, of course, to talk about the Southern traditions, Southern culture, and these things. We do all that, right? And it's the good and bad of all of it. We're very open about that here. There's good and bad and all of it, but it's also important to point out that there are people saying the same things, variety of areas. So when you put all that together and you're trying to come up with a story and you're trying to come up with a with an understanding of a people in a place and you have all this evidence, well, maybe there's something to the stuff. Maybe these people weren't actually lying. But that would be shocking to the establishment because of their religion, because of their dogma. And the piece on Friday, the last piece by Boyd Cathy, The Devil and the Demonstrators, talks about uh, you know, the, his, his experience in the Confederate Flag Day events that they have in North Carolina at the Capitol. And the demonstrators that come out and, and he talks about how, the, how these people look. These are, these are the woke protesters that would come out and violently, in many cases, uh, you know, attack people that were on the other side. It's not about peaceful disagreement. These people are violent. The real violence is always coming from the left. That's something else people have to understand. The real violence always comes from the left. It always does. It always has been that way. You go all the way back to the French Revolution. It was the most violent revolution until we get to the Communist Revolution of Russia, I mean, there's another one, right? So every time we have a leftist revolution, it's violent, and they want they in order to get their way, they have to eliminate the opposition. And I think these people, whether it's this is a soft type of elimination now, the cancel culture, that's a soft elimination. We're not talking about Stalin and the in the gulags and and uh, you know shipping people off to Siberia or worse. Uh, This is a soft type of. Elimination, cancel culture. And the funny thing is, is people are finally standing up to it and say, you know what, forget it, I'm not worried about it anymore. And once people stop worrying about it, once they stop caring, and once they start showing the hypocrisy of all these people, it destroys their entire narrative. And I think that's it. They cannot have the moral high ground anymore. That's the treasury of counterfeit virtue that Southerners have been talking about with Northerners for a long time. And here you have it uh, in this particular case with this Boyd Cathy piece. And he gets in, you know, how, how this was... These are things that are, the, the attack really is on Western civilization. It's not just the South. It's really Western civilization and all the beauty of Western civilization. That's what the target is. It's, it's the South, again, is the low-hanging fruit. But you can punch holes in their narrative. And I think people are starting to see that. And I do think in some ways the tide is turning in America and what people are willing to, uh, to accept in terms of the social justice crusade. So we had a lot of good stuff this week. I highly recommend going out and getting that book. You can get the Letitia Burwell book free of charge online. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's in public domain, and so you can read that. It's a fun little read. It's not long. It doesn't take long to read it at all. And uh, you know, go look at that John Rock speech. John Rock uh, didn't like the South, but he certainly understood the dynamics of the North and the South Better than I think most people do today, uh, even modern historians. Um, I, I'm always shocked too. There was one, that, you know, in the in the post-bellum period, uh, the the Goldfield, David Goldfield, who was, uh, uh, you know, mainstream leftist historian, but he wrote a, he was uh, editing a, a college history textbook, and when they got into the, to the post-bellum South, the people that wrote that chapter actually got it right. I don't know if they still say it, but. They said race relations in the South were more by class rather than race in the immediate postbellum period, and it was that way until the 1880s and 90s. And it wasn't until you got to the 1880s and 90s that you started seeing uh, a northern vision of segregation. This is C. Van Woodward and the strange career of of Jim Crow. See, of all of that, uh, I think that people were honest for a long time, and they're not so much anymore because they are tainted and with this dogma, this religion of social justice. So I admire John Harris, who was, by the way, a former Abbeyville Institute student, attended our summer school. That's a great event. Um, he was, I admire him for writing this book and also doing this uh, video on monuments. So uh, go on out there and check out the video. Uh, read the book. Uh, go out there and get Letitia Burwell's book. And until next time.